Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, today marks a year since the full force of Cyclone Gabriel hit much of the North Island, leaving a trail of devastation in its wake. Eleven people were killed, there were slips everywhere, flooded rivers, homes, businesses, roads and bridges were destroyed, and power and communications networks were knocked out in huge parts of Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti. Large areas have since been deemed too dangerous to live in, and many people are still living in temporary accommodation while they figure out their future. In this glimpse of those horrific days, we begin with the stark red weather warnings, which came from Met Service several days before the cyclone arrived. I want to be very clear, this is going to be a significant system and it will bring significant impacts to much of the North Island. Everything communications-wise is cut off, so we have no data, uh, which of course means no FBOS. Um, some of the petrol station pumps, I've been told, are affected. There is no internet. The main water supply to the city is broken in two places. The devastation was just unbelievable. Posts that had been in the ground by about two or three feet were floating. All day today I've been evacuating people from the roofs of their homes and when we first started the water was about a foot under the eaves and by the end the water was over the very top of the houses. You can just see the clear amount of destruction that's happened. It looks like a tsunami. A massive mudslide has come down the valley. Um, Cars have been overturned. Houses have smashed windows. And you can tell how high the water has come by the orchards. The trees have just been completely flattened. They have been able to have one phone call, one conversation with a civil defence representative in Wairua via satellite phone overnight. The real concern is getting food and water into the community. It is completely cut off. One day of food, two days of water left. There's a heartache, there's a calamity, there's all the anomalies you you didn't really expect in life with the floods, the people that have lost everything basically, their livelihoods. Yeah, those were just some of the voices we heard uh, during those days. A year ago, communities in Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti, of course, woke to the carnage. With more on that day and what has happened since, here is our reporter, Kate Green. Hawke's Bay Civil Defence Controller Ian MacDonald was out of town when Cyclone Gabrielle hit, and like everyone else, he had no idea if his family was safe and well. He arrived home the next day. My daughters ran out onto the road and gave me a big hug and all the rest of it. And then I said, sorry, I, have to, I laid my pack down and, and, uh, and said, right, I need to go back to work. It wasn't until he drove from Napier to Hastings that he realised what he was dealing with. Just the, the cars that were on the side of the road flooded out, you know, the metres of silt, you know, the bridge that I drive over to go to work every day the vegetation and slash that was piled up onto that bridge which is many metres above the water. There were containers floating down and, and apple boxes and, and picking boxes and all this, all this debris coming down the river. The community has spent the last year piecing land, livelihoods and themselves back together. A good chunk of John T. Moffat's Hastings orchards have been replaced by maize and corn which do better in silty soil. The Tutaikuri River breached at Dartmoor and the Ngaru Roro broke its banks at Umahu and the two converged with much of his land in its path. So when I came around the corner here on my jet ski to, um, to make sure my brothers and a couple of mates were all right, I only just ducked in time or my head would have been taken off by that power line. Those power lines are, at a minimum, five and a half metres above the road surface. Bryden Nisbet's apple orchard is just a few kilometres away. On the morning of the 14th, 
he could only just see the tips of his trees. The damage was unbelievable, but as soon as the floodwaters died down, people mucked in. We had people from all over the country turning up with shovels and spades, digging in, and that just, for the psyche of growers and the community, was, was just a huge bonus. Now his trees are covered in pops of red. While the same can't be said for all the region's orchards, some of which are still blanketed in silt, he says growers have shown huge resilience. But it's taken a toll. I think people are still processing it, some better than others, depending on the case scenario of, of their damage. But um, no, there's still a lot of grief out there. There's still a lot of disappointment, still a lot of anger of what's happened. Nearby resident Cynthia Green says she's one of those still processing. She describes standing on her fireplace, her head just above the water, waiting for her husband Raymond to swim her to safety through a hole he'd punched in the garage roof. Every time I think of the water, I can still feel it around my legs. When I was up on the fireplace, and I can still feel it attacking me, almost as Raymond was rescuing me. It was raging, absolutely raging. They lost everything, and are still living in a caravan on the land Cynthia has lived on her entire 70 years. Just next door is the home she grew up in, that's been destroyed too. I think at times that has hit me more than this one. Um, yes, it is emotional. In Gisborne, they're still clearing woody debris from beaches and waterways. Mayor Rahet Stoltz calls it her generation's problem, but the anniversary is primarily a time to look back. Let's not forget there were lives lost. You know, this will be a time for families to reflect and, and remember those who lost their lives. So we want to make sure, even though the vast majority of people have moved on and are moving on, there's still a tremendous amount of work that we have to do. Ms Stoltz says they lost all the infrastructure that could possibly break. But the way members of the community rallied together to help, even while dealing with their own loss, was astonishing. You don't have time to stop. There's no time to stop. I remember the morning when we called staff. Can people please come and help us hand out the Gisborne Heralds because we couldn't communicate. And I turned up and the staff room was packed. 22,000 copies of the Gisborne Herald were hand-delivered, sending an urgent message to conserve water. The roads, particularly State Highway 35, took a hammering, but further north, in Tokumaru Bay... Lillian Taho Ward says things are looking better. We've seen a lot of work done on our roads, uh, which is good to see. And we're of the opinion now that actually if we can drive on the roads, then it's a good day. This evening, Lillian Taho Ward says they're throwing what she's been referring to as a flash shindig. We've had to say to our lot, it's formal dress, so leave the gumboots at home. <laughs> no raincoats, no swan drive. A chance to reflect whether it's through laughter or tears. Well, that uh, confronting report was from our reporter, Kate Green. We are joined now by Emergency Management and Recovery Minister Mark Mitchell. Uh, kia ora, Minister. Welcome to the programme. Uh, kia ora, Ingrid. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it is rough li- listening to that, isn't it? It's, it it's is. remarkable it what those people went through. Yep. The big question, uh, are we better off a year on in terms of how we would cope keeping uh, people and, and property safe uh, should a similar event occur? Well, I think you can hear the emotion in people and there's a deep fatigue there and, and there's many people that um, have been profoundly impacted that um, are still trying to work through that themselves. And uh, the one thing that I would say is obviously 
the people in Tairafiti and in, in, in Hawkesbar in particular um, have shown an incredible um, spirit of community. They're very resilient. Um, Oz and Moira, a day after Gabriel came through, um, the local council had turned out to a council building that had no power. Um, you had farmers sort of coming into town on, on trailers to rescue people out of their homes that were um, surrounded by water. The local Marae set up the command and control centre for them. Um, you know, there's extraordinary stories of how the community actually came together and supported one another through it. But it is extremely difficult and, um, and there is definitely fatigue out there. And from a central government point of view, we are completely focused on trying to speed things up and trying to get closure for people so they can get on with their lives. Okay, one of the things we've heard from a number of people that they felt let down by authorities in terms of uh, no warnings being given, no evacuations, we had mass failure of infrastructure as well. So are we better placed now should a similar event occur today? What's been done to improve that? Well, there has been massive damage to infrastructure, road infrastructure, water infrastructure that, um, that needs to be rebuilt, and that does take time to do that. I think that there is... I think we're more prepared uh, in, in a state of readiness because, unfortunately, um, they've been through it and so they know now how to prepare and how to be more ready for another event. And unfortunately, as a country, we're at the top of we're sort of at the top of the range in terms of having been hit by these uh, ongoing weather events. So we have to have a high state of readiness. Yeah, so just, I, I just let me interrupt you there. Sorry, but how are we more ready? Are you talking about civil defence and local authorities? So I think that civil defence and local authorities, absolutely. But, you know, Tairafri, I was up there just before Christmas where they built a purpose-built um, command and control centre uh, where all the first responders and services can co-locate in terms of the um, the response. Um, I think that, you know, the planning that's gone into it, the learnings that have come out of the um, of Gabriel and Hale means that we are in a better, stronger position. From a NEMA point of view, we're constantly working. We've got Sajiri Mataparai's um, report that will be released in March that will inform us in terms of how we strengthen the legislation around and make sure that we're much stronger as a country to be able to continue to respond to these weather events. Yeah, well, what, yeah, what about other parts of the country? Because, as you say, that area has been hit a number of times, but this could happen anywhere. Yeah, look, I was down on, in Westland um, you know, a few weeks ago when they had when Met Service put out a red alert on a heavy rain warning over there and I was with the Mayor Helen Lash and her CD team and, and the entire team across all the first responders. They put themselves in a state of emergency. They're outstanding. Um, there's deep capability, but we've got to keep building on that and uh, from a national level we've got to look at ways that we can support that, make sure that we can surge in and that we have a, a good, strong response to any um, you know, further weather events. What about power and communication infrastructure which had massive failures uh, with the station going down and, and cell phone towers out. What's been done in terms of building that resilience? Well a lot of that is local led and they are very focused on that making sure that their core infrastructure is reinstated and, and, and reinforced and there's lots of them been quite a bit of mitigation work going on around making sure that it's protected from future um, weather events and flooding events so there has been a lot of work done in that area. Just finally on this issue, uh, many of the people uh, we've spoken to say one of the lessons they learned is don't wait for authorities, take action yourself. What would you say to those people? Look, I think that uh, your own personal state of readiness is really important. Um, Have a grab bag, um, have some supplies that you can have because as we saw, um, communications can go down, there can be massive disruption in terms of how severe the event is. Um, so having your own personal state of readiness is actually really important. Are you heading up there for the anniversary today? 
I am. I'm flying out shortly to um, up to Hawke's Bay, and I'll be up there for commemorations, and I'll be spending time with um, our first responders. Okay. Uh, you'll also be aware in your position as a police minister of the uh, documents obtained by RNZ this week showing the, uh, the ageing 111 call system is putting lives at risk. Are you going to fix that? So, yes, of course, I was made aware of that as the incoming government, and um, uh, I'm working with police now uh, to work on the computer-assisted dispatch system to make sure that it is it is stable, uh, still fit for purpose, and focused on what we need to do to continue to enhance and um, and make sure that we've got a world-class um, you know, assistant, uh, call, 111 call and dispatch system. Okay. Would that include being able to text uh, 111 and, and video calls? Well, the police have said that that's certainly texting is something that um, that they feel now is important in terms of being able to integrate into the system. So, yes, I'm working with police on that. When will that be delivered? Well, we're going we're going through a stage, a period at the moment around looking for cost savings and um, and sorting out um, budgets and things like that, and that's part of that ongoing work. Okay, so could could a an appropriate one 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 call system be a casualty of the uh, cost cutting? Well, I don't want to speculate on that. I just, all I'll say is that I'm aware of, I'm aware now, of course, um, as the incoming minister, that um, the work that the police want to do in terms of enhancing that system and making sure that we've got a world-class okay. system, yeah, no, and I'm yes. working with them to make sure that we do it. But being aware of a problem and doing something about it are two different things. And, and that's what I'm saying. I'm, we're doing something about it. We're sitting down now, and I'm working with police just to work out a plan in terms of what we do about it. Appreciate your time this morning. That is Emergency Management and Recovery Minister, also uh, Police Minister Mark Mitchell. Now the Shareholders Association says Fletcher Building's board should break up the company as investors brace for bad news this morning. Now the company reports its six-month results and it is expected to be a significant loss with market speculation. Uh, The Chief Executive Ross Taylor may leave as a result. Fletcher Building shares were placed into a trading halt on Monday. Oliver Manda is the Shareholders Association Chief Executive and joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Corin. Morning. Let's put this into a little bit of context for people. The size of this company and its importance to the New Zealand market, it has a what, a market cap of what, $3 billion or so? Um, it's certainly a lesser market cap than it was a few years ago. But, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's around that 3 to $4 billion mark, that's correct. So what's going on here? This company has the share prices down about 20% on the, the last couple of years. Uh, it is, they are suggesting, what, that they won't meet their profit targets that they had said uh, or, or the guidance had indicated a few months ago? Well, what they've said is that... Um, the expectations of market analysts differ widely from what their actual result is going to be. So under the NZX continuous disclosure rules, they're bound to uh, make some statements around that, and that was behind the trading halt the, the other day. They're still a profitable company, though? Still profitable, um, although certainly one of the things that is of concern for us is the fact that each year, year after year, there are a continuous series of accounting provisions that reduce the, profit, the underlying profitability of the company. Um, and that, that over time, that's accounted for up to 25% of the company's underlying earnings. So really, for shareholders, it means they can't put a lot of trust in what the company says its underlying profitability actually is. If there are systemic issues related to those sort of significant one-off items, but those one-off items keep on appearing, actually that does reduce the credibility and the trust that investors can have in, 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 in the company's earnings. 
Well, let's look at some of those. I mean, the convention centre, the the fire, there wasn't much they could do about that. That was obviously, uh, you know, something they couldn't predict. Uh, And the next issue that seems to have come along is this issue of the pipes with one of their subsidiary companies uh, in Perth. This potentially, what, 180 million provision? They don't accept liability, though, do they? No, they don't. And look, I think think you're very right to draw that distinction between Fletcher's history in terms of the the previous administration, the previous strategy and the legacy projects that the current board and CEO inherited from that. Um, and, and look, the, the companies manage those legacy projects down to a point where there really are only a couple left. Unfortunately, one of those is the International Convention Centre and really from Fletcher's perspective, that is the gift that just keeps on giving um, and not in a good way. Um, so, so, so certainly... Managing that legacy and managing the complexity associated with that has formed a real issue for for Fletcher Building. From a shareholder's perspective, again, one thing that is clear is that that the board has never quite fully gotten across the risk profile of the business. And it's a key role of any board to ensure that that they can understand the risks that they're facing and govern the risk profile accordingly. So for shareholders, that, that, that is a concern. It flicks the, the Western Australian situation. That is a, what we what shareholders really hope is that that is not Fletcher's new legacy. Right? That that's an issue that, that, that will be the, the gift of the future to, to future shareholders in terms of future accounting provisions. Well, I guess that's right, and shareholders have to make that assessment themselves. What do you... OK, so we've had this sort of... Uh, announcement, I think it came via the Australian share market, that the chief executive was considering his position. I mean, this was is this a bit strange? What are we to make of that? I mean, look, that, that is a very unusual announcement. Um, it did come via the ASX, um, and that's down to a difference in process between ASX and NZX. It's, it's worth noting that, uh, in theory, a trading halt should have occurred on both exchanges at the same time. Um, certainly, we're always quite concerned when investors have the ability to trade shares on the back of um, asymmetric information, information that's available for one shareholder that isn't available to, to another. Okay, um, Oliver, just one last quick question um, ahead of this meeting today. Uh, you look at you look at Fletcher Building's website. It's amazing how many companies they have across the building sector in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, do you, you think it should be, what, broken up? I think it's something that the board could consider. They, we, we have talked about this with them before. They've previously assured us that the integration value, that there is integration value between those different businesses. I think the issue right now is, though, is shareholders have not seen that value. And certainly when it comes to looking at aspects of the, um, of the, of the company's business, it, it and when it comes to the current issues and further ongoing provisions that seem to be affecting shareholders, certainly it's an option that they should be or could be considering. Oliver, thank you for your time. That is Oliver Manda, Shareholders Association Chief Executive. Uh, that is ahead of some uh, news that is likely to come out of uh, this meeting with Fletcher Building this morning. The shares currently are in a trading halt. The Mayor of Auckland has called for a stop to all transport projects funded by the soon-to-be-scrapped regional fuel tax. Now, the government has announced the tax will end uh, by the end of June, prompting questions from the mayor and transport advocates on how the city will fund future projects. Mr Brown says the funding can't be replaced by higher council rates or debt, and the end of the tax creates significant uncertainty for Auckland's transport programme. He joins me now. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Okay. 
Is this a game of chicken you're playing with the government here, trying to build public support and see who blinks first? Well, not really. I mean, I, I, <laughs> the government have cancelled in order to reduce people's costs. Well, it would seem completely ridiculous, so I have to put up rates to increase people's costs. And so if, they're going, if they want to reduce costs, we'll, we'll, we'll do less, because I'm not going to put up rates just so that they can say that we've saved everybody money. Well, they clearly want to see some priorities and a focus on roading, so they presumably are following through on what they promised at the election, which is to scrap that tax. That tax funds roads. It funds buses. You know, the, as far as the crossings and those other things, I'd already, in next year's budget, I've already taken $140 million of those things out anyhow. Uh, it was it was funding and it was it's electioneering. That's what they did, and they're entitled to do that, um, and I accept that. And, but they have, but it has consequences, and the consequences are if we haven't got the money, we're not going to do those things. It's quite simple. Well, Simeon Brown seems to have suggested that they will legislate for key priorities that used that money, that tax money, to ensure they do get completed. Does that well, where does that lead? Well, the two things that that, that, that we have the money for, we've agreed on. That is the next stage of the Eastern Busway and putting the trains under the ground. The rest of the things um, that that uses up the money that he's that is left, so he can, and so he can legislate for that. Uh, and we're quite happy with that. We've both agreed that we would do those two particular things, and that's the money left out. That's the end of the money. So which now, the which other roads? Part about is that we have been trying to get more control over what we do in Auckland, not less. So it's another thing that is an issue. I mean, uh, Aucklanders want less of Wellington. We don't want Wellington by Howick. We want less of Wellington. Thank you. Yes, I'll get to that in a second. Firstly, though, can you be specific? Yes, but be specific about which roads now or which roading upgrades, projects, links to the airport, etc., are now going to be affected because you don't have that tax money. So it's not just cycleways and walkways, is it? Well, not really, because we'd already defunded those. I wasn't going to pay for them anyhow. And so uh, that, that's um, the ones that we're doing now are ones that were 50% funded by the Labor government. I was grumpy about how expensive they were, but governments are entitled to um, indicate what they like for joint funding. So the money that's left out of the um, regional fuel tax will complete the um, next stage of the Eastern Busway. We've both agreed that. That's fine. And it will buy the trains to go underneath the um, city and the city rail link. It will be completely mad to have spent the $5 billion and not put trains there. Um, and so, Sure, and but which, 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 what are these roads that you're talking about that aren't going to happen? Well, those, it uses it up. That's it, mate. Okay, I understand that. But I'm saying, can you be specific for Aucklanders? Which other projects, where are they going to notice that they're driving, that their congestion is going to be worse as a result of not getting that fuel tax money? Glenbar Road and Lake Road are a couple of them. Uh, there are others. But we haven't, we haven't got to July 1 yet. There'll be plenty more of discussions. Well, I get on pretty well with a guy. We can chat, chat on and work out what this possibly means. But threats to legislate to take over, well, you mean you might as well take over the city, really. Add that to the civil thing that you've got in your hand. So where well, I don't that, think that's going to be that popular. Where does that lead? Okay, let's come back to that point you made about wanting to control, have more control over your own roading. We are the only council in New Zealand that doesn't have control of its regional land transport plan. 
It was a result of errors in judgment when they set up Hawking Council. So the largest one in the country doesn't have the same control over its, uh, over its land transport plan as the smallest ones. That makes no sense at all. Well, The government accept that and they do realise that. So what needs to change? How government. would that change? Legislation. We, we, and we, we'll, we'll make sure that that legislation takes place. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't even have the power to set traffic fines. I mean, it's, it's an insult. Okay, let's just let me. So you're saying there will, you've had a commitment, have you, for legislation on this, or you're going to get yeah, one? Yeah, oh, no, yeah, they're agreeing to it. We've also got a legislation to have time of use charging, which both the government and ourselves agree as a good, a really good thing for demand management, and we'll raise some money, but not, a, not so, enough to replace the regional fuel tax. So when, and in few, when will Auckland have greater control of its roading network? Uh, that's to a degree in the hands of the government, and they've got to give us some away. But we have, I've already got agreement with the Prime Minister that we will have a quarterly meeting, and we will, uh, with senior, him leading a group of senior ministers. So we will start to have the behaviour that fits with a government dealing with its largest city. So we're, we're making progress. I mean, um, but there will be tension in certain times. Does Auckland not get the, the greatest bulk of the money when it comes to roading? Do taxpayers it, not deserve some added say in that, perhaps, than in other councils? No, that's completely wrong. The largest group of, of voters and taxpayers is in Auckland, and we want more to say. We send a lot more money to Wellington than we get back, mate. So we don't want more Wellington input. That's quite wrong, what you said there. Okay. No, no, I'm just checking, because it's That's interesting. Right. Um, I think Simeon Brown is on record as saying he would like to see the east-west link, uh, part of the roads of national significance. There's also Mill Road. Uh well, they're going to have to pay. Yeah. Who's going to pay for that? And do you want even want well, those? Every, well, what, first of all, what we've got, what Auckland doesn't have, is an agreed integrated transport plan that that handles freight and people. And the National have agreed that we will work towards creating an, an integrated transport plan, which may or may not include some of those things. Well, do you want wanted. them or not? Because presumably the government will have to pay a large amount of them if they're roads of national significance. Well, the roads of national party significance was a, um, a, a political campaign and it has, certainly has some merit. But we also have um, issues right across Auckland and we want a planned thing. You can't, every time we have one of these ideas where someone comes up I understand, Ma- Mayor Brown, but that's not answering my question. Do, do you want those? That I mean, it's a, it's a well known that that I think the East West Link in particular is it's an expensive piece of motorway, right? But do you, do you yeah, want it? One of the lowest benefit cost ratios of anything we've found. So we're not. I'm yet to be convinced of having that instead of some of the other things. So you don't want it? Uh, there is a problem. No, I'm yet to be convinced. It doesn't mean. Uh, the Mill Road certainly has issues. There are three dreadful intersections in there that need to be fixed. I don't know whether it needs a motorway. There are three bad intersections that need fixing. There's no question mm. about that. It should have been gone on with those things. And so part of an integrated transport plan is to have exactly that, an integrate, not just bits fished out of a shopping cart. And that's been one of the reasons why we don't have an efficient 
transport system in Auckland. Well, on that note, you obviously uh, sent a pretty blistering uh, letter in which you, I think you said you had a few names you could have used but didn't. Uh, Omni Shambles was one you did use uh, in regards to the rail situation and the heated tracks. Well, well, heated tracks are a worldwide situation. There's no question about that. And normal behaviour is that they slow down some trains. It doesn't mean to say you have wholesale. It's um, not. It's not about that, though, is it? It's about the schedule of the maintenance. About them getting that four kilometres worth of track fixed up before the start of the year in the busy period. And and so, will you be seeking answers as to why they they haven't, and whether that's anything you can do about uh, it? The first thing I'll be seeking answers is when there is a problem, fling um, abuse at each other, the parties, AT um, blaming Kiwi Rail, blaming. Auckland one rail blaming each other is not a sensible solution. The solution has to be sensibly worked out to the minimum disruption to the passengers. The passengers were left as a result of that with completely confusing messages, really annoying. And so I want them to behave in a manner which is more conducive when things do go wrong with transport networks. You didn't exactly mince words in your letter, though. Was Was that helpful? Well, I'm not a person who does mince words. I think people, you know, it's hard to get me wrong. So, and, and, and people can't work out how to get on with each other. You have to tell them you are going to have to sort this out. Right. So, you, just to be clear here, you've taken issue with Auckland Transport, who initially, when this issue first arose, fired a, a shot at Kiwi Rail, saying it was not good enough, and they were disappointed. You, you felt what you felt well, that was unfair. Well, no, I think it's probably not unfair to say that you might be disappointed about it. I think it's not as if. Auckland Transport is a blame-free organisation either here, but that's not helpful. What what the public thinks should be is comms go to the public so they understand what are the impacts of what's going on and what do they do next. It gave the impression that there were no trains, or in fact there was delays in some trains and some trains weren't scheduled. But we need to have calm, clear instructions given to the public when there's a problem. What we have, what we have, is slinging insults at each other. It does not help the public. So, what are you going to do about that as mayor? Is there anything you will do about that to ensure that you don't have that? Well, yeah, they're all been my office this afternoon to be barked at to make sure that they do behave in a matter which is, first of all, considering what are the impacts on the public. How do we minimise any problem? How do we stop giving them um, messages which are not clear and not helpful to them? That, Plus, I understand, understand what you're saying about the messaging and, and getting that right, but at the end of the day, people were missing trains and being delayed. That's actually the issue. No, it's not well, it's part of the issue, but, but um, a lot of people thought there were no trains you know, and went off and, and got other ways to get home. There were trains, but there were just some of them there were delays of several minutes. Plus, I'm going to get to the bottom of it and find exactly what did happen. We are supposed to be getting those things linked together so that they function rather than three warring agencies as one collective. The public and me personally don't really care which one's responsible for things as long as the whole thing works. Okay, well, good luck with trying to get some answers there. We look forward to hearing from you perhaps this afternoon uh, or after that meeting to see how it got on. That is the Mayor of Auckland, Wayne Brown, uh, who when it comes to transport has got a fair bit on his plate. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 